Welcome to the Sports Lodge, where sports, entertainment, and pop culture merge within the mind of your host, Roger Lodge. Hey, welcome into the Sports Lodge podcast on the Global Story Network. My name is Roger Lodge, and thank you so much for being here. And today, I want to talk about heroes, specifically my first hero as a young, impressionable sports fan. Do you remember yours? Who was it? Of course you remember. He or she was that special person that for whatever reason, you looked up to them. You watched their every move, the way they played, the way they walked, the way they talked. There was just something about them that we couldn't get enough of. Who was that person for you? They had that thing They had that it factor. They had a charisma that you were just so attracted to. Now, maybe they weren't a superstar on the gridiron or on the court or on the diamond, but gosh darn it, they were a superstar to you. Who was it? Well, that guy for me was a baseball player for my angels as I grew up in Lakewood, California back in the 1970s. His name was Clyde Skeeter Right. And he was without question my guy. Dark hair, handsome, sideburns, and a wicked curveball. And what a changeup. And let me take you back to a Friday night, July 3rd, 1970, a night I will never forget as long as I live. It was a hot summer night in my hometown of Lakewood, 20502 Wilder Avenue. Our air conditioner had broke. I remember like it was yesterday. So I laid in bed with the windows open, inviting in any kind of breeze kind enough to come my way. I was a nine-year-old boy in my bed with my best friend. Wait a minute. Let me clarify. You see, as a young, painfully shy sports fanatic, I think it's important here to point out that my best friend back then was a little green transistor radio. And every single night, I would sit and listen to whether it be Chick Hearn calling Laker games or Vin Scully doing Dodger games or my guy Dick Enberg, the voice of my angels. And on this particular summer evening, my radio was in its usual place, strategically tucked under my pillow with just enough volume to avoid the wrath of my German mother who would occasionally peek in to check my slumber status. On this night, my angels were playing their arch rivals, the Oakland A's. And back then, I kind of felt it was my obligation as my neighborhood's number one halo honk to listen to every inning of every game. And to this day, I can still hear the sweet sound of that legendary angel announcer, Dick Emberg's voice, describing every single pitch as if it were the most important pitch of the season. But this was no ordinary night. My favorite team was getting an absolute lights-out performance from my favorite guy, Clyde Skeeter Wright. And he was on his way to making history. Nobody had reached base for the first four innings. 12 up, 12 down, including eight ground outs. And I remember pounding my pillow in both agony and disgust When the Angels' best lefty that year walked Sal Bando leading off the fifth inning, thus spoiling his perfect game. 
And then he walked Dave Duncan two outs later, making it first and second with two outs, but he got a second baseman Dick Green to ground out to Ken McMullen, who stepped on third to end the inning. No hitter still intact. See? I told you I remember it like it was yesterday. My guy Skeeter did not allow another base runner until he walked Frank Fernandez leading off the ninth inning. Then with one on, nobody out. Bert Campanaris lined out to Jim Fergosi at shortstop for the first out of the ninth. Only two outs to go. And then with 12,131 fans in attendance, sounding like 50,131 on that little transistor radio of mine, Dick Enberg's voice never sounded sweeter. One play, the pitch, curved line to Fergosi, one half, he goes to second for one. How are you, my friend? I am just super, Roger Lodge. Well, I'm sitting here doing the Sports Lodge podcast on the Global Story Network, kind of just reminiscing about that no-hitter back in 1970 that I listened to with my little green transistor radio strategically tucked under my pillow. But before we get to that night, Clyde, let me ask you this. Did you grow up always wanting to be a major leaguer? Was that the goal from the get-go for you? The goal was to play for the New York Yankees, Roger. From the time I was maybe seven, eight years old, I always wanted to wear the pinstripes with the New York Yankees because I knew every one of them that played back then, the position and everything. So it was just the Yankee mystique that you got caught up in, like 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 that a whole lot it. of other people. <laughs> that was it. The Yankees won all the time, and I wanted to win all the time. Clyde, how old were you when you realized that, gosh darn it, I can actually make some money as a major league baseball player? I was probably a senior in high school. And it was pretty good my senior year. Then I went to college, and my first two years were pretty good. Then I got a little bit better. Well, I got a whole lot better my junior and senior years. So you're winning a uh, NAIA National Baseball Championship at Carson Newman College. At that point, is that when, you know, maybe some scouts started coming around for you? Well, my senior year, Roger, in college, we would have maybe 10 scouts in the stands when it was my turn to pitch. And I knew then that uh, they didn't come down to Carson Newman for a vacation. <laughs> I knew they, I knew they come down to watch somebody, and I was hoping it was me. And you know, it turned out it was me. Hey, Clyde, what was the biggest obstacle you had to overcome in getting to the big leagues? Well, there wasn't, uh, you know, really one big obstacle. You know, uh, I only spent four months in the minor leagues before I came to the big leagues. And people ask me, well, how did that happen? I said, well, it's really simple. When I came out of college, I was pretty good. 
And when I looked in the paper and saw where the California Angels were, they needed help. So <laughs> it, wor- it worked out just perfect for me, Roger. Hey, what was harder for you, Clyde Wright, my first baseball hero, getting to the big leagues or staying in the big leagues? Staying in the big leagues. You know, uh, the route I took, it was easy for me to get there. But once you get up there and you play these other teams and you think, well, wait a minute, I better get a little bit better because some of these old boys are a lot better than I am. So, you know, I just had to work a little bit harder and a little bit harder to stay up there, Roger, because the other players on the other team were better than I was at that time. Clyde, you look at the stretch that you had from 1970, and I'm going way back here for my audience, but from 1970 through 1972, you had three straight seasons of a sub-three earn run average. That would get you about 10 to $12 million today. Do you ever think about that? Roger, no, because I don't know what I would have done with $10 million. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe gotten a lot of trouble? I probably would have. If I'd had some of my old teammates around, I know I'd have gotten a lot of trouble. Clyde, who was an old teammate that when you went out with this guy, there was the potential for trouble? Oh, gee. You had to ask me that, and I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> Jimmy Fergosi. And what? He, was, uh, he was my sidekick. He took me everywhere that he went. And, uh, you know, I did not have to buy a dinner. I did not have to buy a drink. I didn't have to buy anything because Fergosi always paid for it. And he's my idol. And he'll be my idol forever and ever. And that was one of the best-looking guys in Major League Baseball. So I'm sure when you guys were out and about, you know, finding some entertainment was rarely a problem. Am I right? Well, people used to think we were twins. I was that good-looking, too, about 40, 50 years ago, Roger. (laughs) Oh, I know. I just talked about that before you jumped on with me. I got all the baseball cards. And, Clyde, we talked about the money, okay? And back then, when you're playing Major League Baseball, and here you are, like I mentioned, winning 22 games in 1970, throwing no-hitters, having three straight years of a sub-three earned run average, during the off season, Clyde Wright, did you have to find some other employment? I had a couple of jobs for a couple of winners during the off season. I sold the kit that they put together to make the Volkswagens out of. So I did that. I did that for a couple of years, and then uh, one year I tried to, you know, hustle golf to make a little money. But, you know, I was pretty good at golf, Roger. I was a handicap of plus two. And you can't make any money playing guys with a plus two handicap. (laughs) Give me a major league baseball player from the 60s and 70s that was the best golfer you ever played with. The only guy that I ever thought that could play golf on the professional level was Andy Messerschmidt. Now, I've seen Robin Yacht play. I've seen Roden play. I've seen Bench play. I've seen, uh, you know, uh, from uh, Atlanta. I can't think of his name right now. Uh, And Messerschmidt was the best 
that I ever played with. Clyde Wright here on the Sports Lodge podcast, my very first baseball idol. Hey, Clyde, give me a guy you love to watch to pitch today. Oh, I love to. Well, I'm kind of, you know, he's my old favorite. I love to watch Scherzer from uh, Washington. Sure. You know, and I love to watch, uh, as my wife says, my second child, Kyle Hendricks from the Chicago Cubs. Now, there's quite a few of them that I love to watch. Uh, you know, Grinky. You know, I love to watch him because, you know, he doesn't throw that hard. Kyle doesn't throw that hard. But Scherzer can get it up there pretty good, right? But they're all, you know, they just fight from the time they warm up till they get taken out of the game or they finish the, you know, the nine innings. Hey, Clyde, in today's game, I see so many young guys come up and they want to throw the baseball through a brick wall. Not until they learn to throw off-speed stuff do they find success. What was the pitch for you that brought success? I developed, uh, I went to Puerto Rico in 69. And Marv Grissom, our old pitching coach, had taught me how to just turn it over like a screwball, right? Right. So I, w- I went to, you know, Puerto Rico, and believe it or not, Fergosi was my manager. And one day, I'll never forget this, and this is what really made me a pitcher to where I could do just most anything I wanted to with the baseball. My catcher was Pat Corrales, the backup catcher for Johnny Bench. Sure. And I'll never forget this. Nate Colbert from San Diego. Yeah. He was he was the batter. So the count is three and two with the bases loaded, and Pat puts down the screwball. I shook it off. He put it down again. I shook it off. He put it down a third time. He said, "Time out." He come to the mound. He looked me right straight down. He said, "Look." He said, what are you trying to save it for? He said, I guarantee you, if you throw it, if it's in the dirt, three feet bouncing, a strike, anything, I guarantee you that Colbert will swing at it. I threw it, and it bounced about two feet in front of the plate. Colbert swung at it, missed it. From that time on, I could throw it any count. Anytime I wanted to, Rod. That is so cool. I give Pat Corrales a big credit, you know, for being, you know, just hard-headed enough to come to me and say, what are you saving it for? So I'll never forget that. And you went from a record of one win and eight losses in 1969 with our Halos <laughs> to 22-12 and 12 the following year, your all-star season. Tell me the one thing about making the Major League All-Star team when you walked into that clubhouse as part of the American League All-Stars that night. What what will you always remember about that night? I'll always remember the guys I look around, right? And there's none of them that were nine-place hitters or eight-place hitters. All of them would hit cleanup, you know. They were that good. It was a star from every team in the American League. And, you know, 
to me to walk around that clubhouse and look at them and say, what in the world am I doing here? You know. <laughs> well, you certainly earned your way that season, finishing 22-12 and 12 with an ERA at 2.83. Give me the one play about your 1970 All-Star appearance that you will never forget. Well, there's actually two. There's one, Dick Green hit a line drive back at me, and uh, I caught it, right? It was right in front of my face, and I caught it. And that's the one I remember, plus the ground ball that uh, Philippe Lou hit to Jimmy Pergosi, who turned it into double play. I threw three pitches and got three outs. And I'm thankful that it happened that quick because I was getting some kind of nervous, Roger. Wow. Clyde, speaking of getting nervous at the major league level, your first game in the big leagues. Let me take you way back here. June 15th, 1966, Metropolitan Stadium in Minnesota against big bad Tony Oliva, Harmon Killebrew, (laughs) and the rest of a Twins club that was coming off a World Series appearance against the Dodgers. First game of a doubleheader, and all you did was go a complete nine innings. You allowed just one run on four hits. You guys won eight to one. Are you thinking at that point, wow, this major league stuff is pretty easy? (laughs) No, 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 no. Uh, You know, Roger, I wasn't a strikeout pitcher, and I know they hit some balls hard and all that stuff. But this is the thing about it. When I walked out to the mound in Minnesota that day, I was not nervous. You know, it just seemed like I'd been there forever. But when we came home to Anaheim, and I go out to pitch, and I look around, I think, you know, this is my home stadium. You know, if I don't do pretty good, they might boo me, right? <laughs> right. If I was if I was pitching in Minnesota and I gave up seven or eight runs, they would boo the manager for taking me out. Who did you play for? Whose approval did you seek as a major league baseball player? Well, we had a baseball coach in college named Frosty Holt, and we had another uh, coach that took over named Bobby Wilson who played defensive back at uh, University of Mississippi, right? Right. And every time I needed to talk to someone about baseball, I would call them, you know, back in my hometown in Tennessee. So those two guys probably knew as much about baseball as anybody I met in the big leagues. Clyde Wright, give me a guy that you could, for whatever reason, you just couldn't get this guy out. I could not get Davey Johnson out from Baltimore or Reggie Smith from uh, Boston. I throw it behind their head, and it hit a double. So, you know, I couldn't figure them out because they hit me just like, you know, they owe me. And, you know, back in our day when a guy could just wear you out, they call you cousin like you're kinfolk, right? <laughs> so that's what they call me, you know, Davey and, you know, David kid me all the time. Say, How you doing, cousin? I said, you're going to make me mad one of these days getting all those base hits. Hey, you know. hey Clyde, back in your day, because I don't know if they do it as much today, but when you're playing Major League Baseball in the 60s and 70s, when, let's face it, it was a lot loosey-goosey, however you want to describe the atmosphere. 
When you were on the road, did you spend time with your opponents? Would like if you're playing the the Washington Senators, would you and a couple of senators go out? Or if you're in Baltimore, would you and Jim Palmer or Andy Etchebarren go out and have a pop after a game? Was there more of that in your day than there is today? Yes. You know, back in uh, my day, Roger, I had some pretty good friends on the other teams. You know, uh, my two favorite was probably uh, Messerschmitt, uh, not Messerschmitt, but Andy Etcheberry from Baltimore, sure. and Jim Palmer and Dave McNally. And every time we'd go into Baltimore, I would always go to dinner with them and have a couple of cokes afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> if you were playing the Yankees in New York, was there ever a time then Clyde Wright found himself out and about with superstar Mickey Mantle? I have had a couple of cokes with <laughs> Mickey Mantle. You know, people always tell me, Roger, you played at the wrong time. I said, no, no. I said, when I can watch Willie Mays play, when I can have a little Coke with Mickey Mantle and I can see Hank Aaron bat, that's a pretty good time. That's a pretty good era. You played. So in, I played at the right time. Oh, you played one of the greatest eras in the history of the grand game. Clyde Wright, tell me, who with your own eyes threw a baseball harder than anybody else? There's a guy that nobody probably has heard that much about. His name was Steve Dalkoski. He was a little bitty left-hander. I think he started in the Baltimore organization. But I saw him pitch when I was in college at uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, at Billy Myers Stadium. He struck out 22 and walked 17. And he was about, I'd say, 20. 20 balls that hit the backstop. He did not have any idea where it was going. Guys would go to bat, and they would stand on their tiptoes as far away from the home plate as they could get. That's the only guy that I've seen that could throw it harder than anybody else. Okay, so he threw a baseball harder than anybody. Who, with your own eyes, did you witness hit a baseball further than anybody you'd ever seen. <laughs> uh, Roger, this show don't last for 10 or 12 years, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell you, Reggie Jackson could hit it. Harmon Killebrew could hit it. Frank Howard could hit it. Al Kaline, hey, I could name a bunch of them. I could name a bunch of them. I'm going to throw out some baseball names, and I just want you to give me your reaction. The first thing you think about when you hear these names. Let me start. I'll start with Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle, how fast he could get to first base from a left side if he dragged Bunny the ball, and how far he could hit it. Let me go to Rod Carew. <laughs> My old friend Rod Carew. Every time he would come to bat in Minnesota, I would throw the first pitch right at his front kneecap. And from then on, 
I would throw it down the middle and let him do. Here, you do what you want to with Because <laughs> if, if I threw it outside, base hit the left. I threw it inside, base hit the right. I said, here, I'll throw it down the middle, and I hope you hit it at somebody. Clyde, it's pretty well documented. I guess we could sit here and have a conversation and make a case that Rod Carew may have saved your life. Can you explain to my audience how Rod Carew saved your life? There's no maybe to it, Roger. Rod Carew did save my life. And this is, you know, this is a dumb thing to say. Thank God that Rod Carew had a heart attack, right? Now, that sounds really tough, but um, three or four days after he had his heart attack, my wife kept on me, well, go have yours checked. I said, hon, I feel good. Nothing's wrong, you know, and all this. I feel good. I went and had it checked, and I told uh, my wife and I told the doctor, if there's anything wrong, I didn't want those stents put in, right? Right. So when I woke up, he looked at me and he said, well, you got your wish. You're not going to have those stents put in, but you've got to have open heart surgery next week. And I, I said, what would you say? I said, no. He said, yeah, you got four arteries blocked, 95%. And right, he did. He actually saved my life. And every time I see him, I give him a big old hug. Hey, Clyde, when the doctor tells you that you have 95% blockage, what goes through your mind at that point? You're going to die. <laughs> that was that was about it. You know, when he said 95% blockage and, uh, you know, you got to have the operation, and I'm thinking, oh, you got to cut my chest open, you know? So... The doctor I had was unbelievable, Raj. His name was Dr. Caparelli, and he went to Stanford. So I'm talking to him, and I ask him, you know, the questions about the operation stuff. And he said, well, I'm pretty good at it, right? And I kind of looked at him, and I said, well, I hope you are. I hope you're not second best, right? <laughs> I said, I said, where'd you go to college? He said, Stanford. I said, didn't do it. And he looked at me. That's easy. I said, well, yeah, it's that easy. And Roger Stanford had played Notre Dame on Saturday, and Stanford kicked a field goal with 20 seconds left to beat Notre Dame. He pulls his cell phone out and shows me the football going through the goalpost. He was there at that game, and from then on, you know, everything was fine. After I had the heart surgery, about once every couple of months, I'd go down and have lunch with him, right? So he's performed quite a bit of them, and... To my sake, I guess he's pretty good because I'm still here, and that was, oh, I think it's been about four years now. And we're all thrilled that you are still here. Clyde Wright, my first baseball hero. Let's talk about, I want to go to your last major league game, September the 26th, 1975. You're holding on for the Texas Rangers. You're pitching against the Royals. 
you come into a bases-loaded, two-out mess, and you have to face Harmon Killebrew. Well, he reaches on an air. Then you walk Amos Otis to force in a run. But then you strike out Buck Martinez. And that was it, Clyde. After 100 career wins, a lifetime ERA at 3.50 and 329 big league games, your big league career was done in America. As you walked off the mound that day, did you know, that's it, I'm not going to pitch in the major leagues in America any longer? Well, you kind of get that in the back of your head, Roger. But sometimes there's something that tells you, wait a minute, I can still do this, right? But it didn't turn out that way. That was the final game that I pitched in the big league. So from there, you go to Japan where you were known as Crazy Right. How did you earn that term of endearment? <laughs> oh, Roger, there was a couple of things over there. When I went over there, now you've got to understand that the Japanese baseball is played just a little bit different. Uh, you know, they didn't want the Americans to do better than their players. Now, I can understand that because every American that went over there was taking some Japanese kid's place on a baseball team. And sometimes, uh, you know, I would get taken out like four and two-thirds innings with the lead. And sometimes it just didn't sit right with me. And uh, I remember one night they took me out, and I go in the clubhouse, and I'm still pretty hot, right? <laughs> yeah. So this, this guy comes in, and he starts taking pictures. And I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing in here taking pictures, right? So I grabbed his camera. And I was trying to take the film out of it, Raj. And, you know, being from Tennessee, I wasn't smart enough at the time to figure out how to open that Japanese camera, right? Right. So finally, finally I thought, well, what the, you know. So I just laid it down on the ground and I took a baseball bat to it. So that camera would never take another picture, right? So the next day, Nakashima who was my manager, came up to me, and I apologized to him, right? He said, no, no, it's okay. The camera and everything's paid for because that sports rider was not supposed to be in the clubhouse. That was a no-no for a sports rider to go in the clubhouse during the game. Have you had anyone within the last couple of years recognize you and refer to you as crazy, right? <laughs> yes. Quite a few people do that. They still remember uh, you as crazy, right? As crazy, right, though. And I'm going to tell you a little story. Jarrett, my son, was one year old when he came over there. And the Tokyo Giants made him a jersey with the pants and stuff and put crazy one half on the back <laughs> of it. <laughs> and I still have that uniform, and I'll keep it forever. That is absolutely fantastic. Clyde Skeeter Wright is my first baseball hero, and we got him here on the Sports Lodge podcast. It's so great talking to you, Clyde. Hey, what was more nerve-wracking for you? 
your first game in the big leagues in Minnesota or Jarrett's, your son Jarrett's first uh, big league game? <laughs> well, I never got noticed, uh, nervous in Minnesota, but when I saw my son pitch, now I'm going to tell you, I've seen a lot of sons, you know, pitch in the big leagues. And I see their father and mothers in the stands. Right. You know, I would go watch Jarrett pitch, and I would try not to show any of my, I'd hold him inside, right? But my wife, Vicky, she, sometimes she, <laughs> she couldn't watch it. And I noticed the same thing from some of the other fathers. They can kind of hold it inside, you know, but the mothers are the ones that are really nervous. And I sat with uh, Mike Trout's uh, father and his mother, and, you know, his dad played. So he's pretty calm about it. But mom, uh, you know, she likes to know what's going on. And every now and then she'll, you know, come on, get a base hit and all that. But I think the mothers get a lot more nervous than the fathers. And, you know, I've been watching on TV uh, Vladdy's sons up at Toronto. And uh, I can't think of the second baseman from Houston who's in the Hall of Fame, Biggio. Yes. His son is up there. Carl Yastrzemski, I don't know if it's his nephew or what, with the Giants. It's his grandson, I, Mike. Just hit his first home run, yeah. Oh, yes, I saw it. And the other one I'm watching on the Major League Draft is Bobby Witt Jr. You know, Bobby Witt's son is coming. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of up-and-coming stars. Would you say Major League Baseball, the game's in a really good place right now with all these young stars coming up? Well, the young stars are coming up because, you know, back when I played, Rod, 30 or 32 or 33, that wasn't old to play baseball. Now, if you get up there and you're making 10 or $12 million dollars, and they can replace you with a young kid that's got talent that makes 550000 you know, that's just the way it is. That's the economics for the baseball club, right? Sure. They could get rid of the 33-year-old and sign, you know, bring some young kid up. But I've got to tell you this story on your podcast. The day that Mike Trout was selected by the Angels, right? Right. We had a general manager named Tony Riggins. Tony Riggins called me in his office, and he said, Clyde, we want you to find a, I think it was New Jersey, and introduce our first-round pick. I looked at him, and I said, Tony Riggins, you have got to be out of your mind. If I'm going to fly all the way to New Jersey and back and introduce some high school kid that will probably never play one stinking day in the big leagues, you're crazy. So I had to apologize to Mike. You know, but, <laughs> you know, but how many players make it drafted out of high school? Not too many. Not too many. When you watch Mike Trout play today, who does that remind you of most from back when you played? Oh, gee. Uh, the way he plays the game, he plays the game hard. He hustles all the time. Uh, you know, there's a lot of guys that played hard. Uh, you know, 
Carew played hard. Mantle played hard. You know, K-Line played hard. But for me, I do not know right now who I, you know, could compare him to. Because I'm going to tell you, he's pretty darn good. (laughs) In your day back when you were watching guys come up, give me a prospect. He was a young player just coming up to the big leagues, and you said to yourself, this guy is an absolute lock to be a superstar. You just (laughs) knew. One day in spring training in Palm Springs, California, I'm walking into the dugout with Tom Morgan, and I keep hearing this mitt pop over on the side, right, the warm-up mound. And it just kept getting louder and louder. I didn't even look around. I looked at Tom Morgan. I said, Tom, is that dude right-handed or (laughs) left-handed? He said, Clyde, he's left-handed. I said, well, I'll see you later because he's going to take my job. And it was Frank Tanana. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. What a great story that was. Hey, yeah. you played for a lot of great managers, Bill Rigney, Lefty Phillips, Del Rice, Bobby Winkles. Give me the manager you learned the most about baseball from. That's very easy. It was Bill Rigney. And, you know, I still don't understand why he's not in the Hall of Fame someplace, right? Rigney would always come to you and talk to you when you did something wrong and explain how it was supposed to be. And sometimes, you know, when pitching coaches go to the mound, it doesn't happen anymore, but the pitching coach would come to the mound and sometimes just chew you out in front of all the fans and stuff, right? Right. Rigney would never do that. Rigney used to wear this great big old watch. And he would come to the mound, and he would say something funny, you know, just to get your mind off of what you were doing for a split second. I know one time he come to the mound, and he looked at me, and he said, one, two, three, four. He said, I still got all four men, fielders. You had not got one of them killed yet. But he said, you are running the daylights out of my outfielders. He said, give me the ball. I said, here it is, Skip. Bye. Did you yeah. ever get a visit from someone out on the mound, and it was not a baseball conversation? Oh, yeah. Rigney came out one day, and he looked at me, and he looked at his watch, and he said, look. If you don't get somebody out, we're going to miss last call. And just turn, just turn around and walk off the mound. You know. Hey, what about yeah. what about playing for Billy Martin in Texas? How did that go? <laughs> you don't want me to even get into that. Oh, yes, we yeah. do, Clyde. Come on, give me a Billy Martin story. Billy Martin, one day I split my finger had to go to the team doctor. I split it, and it was about a little over an inch, and it was deep. So I went to the doctor, Mikoski. I never will forget about him, Dr. Mikoski. And he looked at it, and he said, look. He said, we better not stitch it up because it might leave a scar, right? 
I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, let's just put those butterfly band-aids on it to hold it together, you know, and let it heal. So that afternoon at 1 o'clock, I went in Billy Martin's office, and I showed him what had happened. He said, well, just take, he said, how long did the doc say? I said, about two weeks. He said, well, just make sure you do your running and stuff and let me know when it's healed. I said, okay, fine. So that night, I go down in the bullpen, Roger, and uh, I don't take a glove. Uh, You know, I don't take anything down there with me. But my jacket had my shoes on. And we're getting beat like 19 to 3 or 19 to 4, and we're just getting worn out, right? And the umpire comes down. He says, Clyde, you're in there. I said, do what? He said, you're in. I said, in what? (laughs) He said, that's the second time Billy's been to the mound. You got to (laughs) go. Roger, I did not have a catcher down there. (laughs) I did not have a glove down there, right? because I split my finger open. So now, I I told the umpire, I said, I don't have a glove or anything. I split my finger. He said, you got to go. So I go with the dugout. Somebody throws me a glove, right? I go to the mound. The first four pitches hit the backstop, right? <laughs> yeah. First four pitches. And the umpire happens to notice that I've got all those butterflies on my finger. He comes out and he said, Clyde, that's illegal. You can't pitch with those. You got to take them off. So I took them off. And Bill Fahey was a catcher. I'll never forget this. I threw one pitch and it just ripped it wide open. And the blood just started flying every place, right? It's on the ball. It's on the uniform. And the umpire come out and he said, where's all the blood? I said, well, it's my finger. He said, well, we better tell Billy. I said, Billy knows about it, right? So I give up two or three runs, two or three line drives that were caught, and I go in the dugout. I walk in one end, and he's on the other end, and he turns around and screams at me, what the H is wrong with you? And I looked at him, I said, what did you say to me? He said, what the, I said, Billy, I said, I come to you in your office, at one o'clock today, with my finger ripped open, he said, I haven't seen you all day. <laughs> and, and Art Fowler was sitting in there, right, the pitching coach in the dugout. I said, Art, was I in his office this afternoon at one o'clock? Art says, if Billy says you wasn't in there, you wasn't in there, right? So he said something else, and we said a few words to each other, and I start after him, right? Bergosi and Gaylord Perry said, you know, they just grabbed me by the jacket and stuff said, it ain't worth it. I would have loved to have found out that night if this old hillbilly, cow milking hillbilly from Tennessee was as strong as he thought he was when it comes to try to fight Billy Martin, <laughs> you know. And it was going to lead up to that unless Pergosi and Gaylord hadn't stopped me. You against Billy Martin, who wins that fight? 
Well, I hope I do. <laughs> you, you know, uh, I I tell you one thing, I wouldn't stand around for him to throw the front, you know, the first punch. Uh-uh. No. Because, hey, he was a tough guy. He was a tough guy. And he could manage, right? He's probably one of the smartest uh, guys I've ever seen manage. Him, Ralph Houck. You know, Rigney, those guys, they knew how to manage. But as far as, you know, sometimes not treating people right, you know, a couple of them didn't. All right, Clyde, we have to clear something up here once and for all. Because whenever I used to run into Jay Johnstone, he would always tell me that he <laughs> saved your nose. That's a lie, Roger. Well, hold on, my, hold on. My audience doesn't know where I'm going here. Jay Johnstone, whenever I used to run in with him, he was the center fielder the night you threw the no-hitter against the A's. Now, Jay always tells me that he saved Clyde Wright's no-hitter with a sensational leaping catch up against the wall to rob Reggie Jackson of a home run leading off the seventh inning. Can you confirm or deny Jay Johnstone saving your no-no? I deny that from the word go. And, you know, you're not the only one that Jay told that to. He told it probably to another twenty or 30,000 people, right? But finally, I just had enough of it. So I go back, and they have the film of it, right? Sure. We take the picture when he's catching the ball, and he's standing flat-footed. Right at the edge of the warning track. <laughs> and the next time I saw him, I gave him the picture, and I said, I don't want to hear about you going up on that wall anymore. And I never heard it again. <laughs> the video doesn't lie. Hey, Clyde, before you leave me here, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time today, give me your favorite ballpark, the yard you used to love to throw in the most. I used to love to go to Minnesota to the old Met. It was, you know, it was so neat, the air, the people there. I used to love to go to Minnesota. And the other one, my favorite, was the old Kansas City ballpark, you know, downtown where Toma, George Toma, used to cut the outfield like that checkerboard. Sure. And those two were probably my two favorites. How about your favorite city on the road to visit just because of the, shall we say, off-the-field activities? Oh, good Lord. New York, New York, New York. (laughs) Not even close, huh? (laughs) No, (laughs) not even close. So you started uh, this podcast by telling me that you uh, always wanted to pitch for the New York Yankees. Is that one thing in Major League Baseball that you always wanted to do, but it just never really happened for you? Is there anything else like that? Well, I had a chance, Roger, to sign with the Yankees, let's see, in 19, I think, 64. I was a junior in college. And I was playing in the NBC tournament in Wichita, Kansas. And uh, Don Sutton was one of the players on our team, right? So the scout from the Yankees told us, 
you know, he would give Sutton so much money, and he would give me so much, right? Sure. And I looked at him, and I said, wait a minute. I said, that's crazy. I said, Sutton can only pitch. I said, I can pitch, and I can hit, you know. And, you know, we talked for a little while, right? And I looked, and I said, you don't know much about baseball, do you? <laughs> you know, to a scout. Roger, I, I found out later <laughs> that guy signed Mickey Mantle, <laughs> you know, all the big stars with the Yankees. I forget his name, but I'm thinking, I told that guy he didn't know anything about baseball. He signed <laughs> Mantle and all those guys. So that was the story about the Yankees. But the biggest thing that came out of it, when I was in college, I never had a scholarship. The townspeople paid my way through college. Wow. I made the agreement, if you pay my way, I will graduate. So I declined to sign with the Yankees and went back and graduated from Carson Newman in 1965. With a degree in? Do what? What was your degree in? Oh, physical education. But the thing I like, I almost had a, a triple major, one in sociology and one in biology. I used to love biology because we would get to dissect, you know, the pigs and frogs and all that. Stuff. And I don't know why. It must have been because I lived on the farm. I used to love to do that and, you know, see how all the parts would work on an animal. It, it was amazing. And then you went on to dissect some of the best hitters throughout your major league <laughs> career. Absolutely incredible. Hey, Clyde, did you have a favorite, like, warm-up music that you used to listen to driving to the ballpark when it was your turn to pitch? No, Roger, because your show wasn't on back when I played. <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> no, I never had. But, you know, each one of us had a song that they would play when we would go to the mound. And mine, being from Tennessee, was the Tennessee Waltz. Awesome. Give me one thing that took place or was happening when you played in the big leagues that you would love to see back in the big leagues. Like maybe, I used to love the bullpen cart. It would bring relievers in on the cart. Yes. What, what would you like to see come back, Clyde? Hey, I would love to see that too because I have talked to it with some of the angel, uh, you know, executives and stuff. Sure. And, you know, just put a big logo on there, the big A, and then put some advertisement on it. Or bring them in in a convertible, right? But, that's, you know, it takes too long for some of them to get from the bullpen to the mound, you know. Absolutely. But some of them run, you know. But if you do a good sprint, then, you know, a hard sprint, you've got to take a couple of deep breaths while you're warming up to get everything back to normal. But I would love to see that. I would love to see the hit and run in baseball. The best guy that I ever saw to play the hit and run was Harvey Keene with the old Detroit Tigers. He could do it nine times out of ten. Hit the ball to the other side, get the runner over. You know, I'd like to see some bunts or something when we get a chance to tie it up. When uh, 
you know, I watch all the Angel games now. And sometimes we'll score one run. I tell everybody, if we score one, they have to score two. If we score three, they have to score four and on up the ladder. But, you know, now it's home run, strikeout. Home run, strikeout. You know. Every, but, yeah. uh, Everybody with the I launch angle my- trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. That's what we get a lot of, either a home run. A lot of Dave Kingmans out there, either a clout or an oh, out no. in Major League Baseball. Hey, Clyde, give me the biggest star that ever wanted and came back in the clubhouse after you pitched a game. Well, oh, gee, I don't know. But probably the biggest star I've ever met was Denzel Washington after I retired, right? Right. And I'm working and I'm working for the Angels. So they have the TV. Denzel's in a suite, right? Sure. And he's got on his Yankee cap. And I told the guys uh, upstairs, I said, look, put that camera on Denzel the start of the fifth inning. So I go down and introduce myself that I work for the Angels and stuff. It was nice to have him there, but I brought you a present. So I gave him the angel cap, right? And he looked at me and he said, we're on national television, aren't we? (laughs) I said, yes, we are, Denzel. And we sat and talked for about 30 minutes because he had a son playing running back down south someplace at a college. And we were talking about, he was talking about how good he was and all this stuff. So we had a nice conversation for a little while. Well, I guess there probably was not a bigger star at one time in this country than Gene Autry. And then, of course, he owned the Angels during uh, your time in Anaheim. What was it like being around Gene Autry when he owned the Angels? Roger, I won't tell you. Gene Autry would always come in the clubhouse. He knew everybody's name. He knew everybody's wife's name, and he knew the kids' names, right? And one day he comes down in there, and I look at his boots, and, boy, they are just shining, right? And, you know, me being from Tennessee, I said, boy, look at all them diamonds in that shoe, in that boot. (laughs) I said, Gene, I just want one of those boots, right, with all those diamonds in it. He looked at me, he said, "Mm mm-mm. He said, they're all glass. He said, I don't wear the diamonds out too much. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he was just amazing. He kept score of every ball game that he attended. And you could talk to him about anything. You know, it's just like uh, Fergosi was his little Bobo, right? <laughs> it was like his own son. And uh, when they traded Fergosi, you know, it broke Gene's heart. You know, but everything happened for a good reason. We got a guy in the deal from the Mets by the name of Nolan Ryan. And people used to ask me, he said, well, how long did it take the fans to forget Fergosi? I said, well, after Nolan pitched about a couple of games, <laughs> you know, they didn't think about Pergosi that much anymore. What was it like to uh, get up on that dugout railing watching Nolan Ryan pitch as a teammate in the 70s? <laughs> I'm going to tell you, Nolan's just a superhuman being, too. But, you know, 
every guy that ever hit a home run off of me, Nolan got even for me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I thank him all the time. Thanks that guy because he hit a home run off me last week. But, you know, I used to love to watch him pitch. And we had a guy in Detroit, Earl Wilson, a big right-hand pitcher. And uh, we also had the guy from Cleveland, Sudden Sam McDowell. I used to love to watch those guys pitch because, you know, they could throw it hard. You know, if the guys today are throwing it 99 to 100, Nolan and Sam McDowell had to throw it 106, 107. You know, they got different radar guns and stuff today. They got different ways to measure it. They used to measure it when it hit the catcher's mitt. Now they measure it from the time it leaves the hand, you know. But, uh, you know, those three guys, I love to watch them pitch. Clyde, before you leave me, all-time biggest baseball thrill. What was it? You'll never forget it. Well, uh, you know, I got the the no-hitter was one. But I'm going to tell you, when I went to the All-Star game in Cincinnati and I went in that clubhouse – and I saw all of these guys, and now, Roger, I look at them, two-thirds of them are in the Hall of Fame. That was two. The other big thrill I had was when the Angels invited me to go to Cooperstown, New York, for Vladdy's ceremony, right? Sure. I, I got to see a lot of my old friends. You know, Palmer, Robin Yon, Bob Buecher, Gaylord Perry. We're sitting at a table one night, and we're talking to Gaylord, right? And Gaylord said, I only cheated for one one year. I mean, one game, right? <laughs> and Euchre looked at him, and he said, yeah, that one game lasted 22 years. <laughs> you know, it was just a, a fun time. Seeing all uh, the guys that I played with or played against, you know, Johnny Bench, you know, Perez was there. It was just super. Clyde, and this was super. I can't tell you. If somebody would have walked into my bedroom back on Friday night, July the 3rd, 1970, when I was listening to you throw that no-hitter on my little green transistor radio and told me, someday you will be able to call that man a dear friend, I would have looked at them and told them, you were absolutely crazy. But it's just amazing what life brings us. Clyde Wright, my very first and my all-time favorite baseball hero. I can't thank you enough for your time today. Roger, I appreciate you. I appreciate all the kind words you say about me and my family. And I just can't thank you enough. And I can't wait till we have another halo honk at the Stadium. All right, I'm looking forward to another Halo Honk Night in the upper deck of the house that the Cowboy built that Artie's made even better, a.k.a. the Big A. Clyde, again, thank you so much, my friend. We'll see you out at the ballpark. Rogers, thank you. That is Clyde Skeeter Wright, my all-time and very first baseball hero here in the Sports Lodge on the Global Story Network. Can't thank you enough for checking in. Look forward to our next visit. I'm Roger Lodge. Have a great day, and we'll see you soon. 
The Sports Lodge with Roger Lodge was brought to you by the Global Story Network.